Welcome back to the Accord Research Alliance podcast, where we talk with thought leaders and innovators about monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning in Christ-centered relief, development, and advocacy. So I'm your host, Nathan Maloney, and today I'm talking with Lincoln Lau, who is the Director of Research at International Care Ministries, or ICM. And Lincoln is no stranger to the Accord Research Alliance, having been a keynote speaker for us in 2017 at our annual intensive. And he was also a guest on a previous podcast, um, podcast number seven. So if you haven't listened to that, I I definitely encourage you to go back and and take a listen uh, to that because today is really a continuation of an ongoing conversation that we've been having over the last few years around evidence and randomized controlled trials or RCTs, which, which many would call the gold standard for effectiveness research. And so in, in our conversation, it's great to hear uh, some of Lincoln's latest thinking on these topics, how his thinking uh, has continued to evolve around these. And I think you'll find it um, helpful and enjoyable uh, to hear the conversation. So if you, if you do find it helpful and think others might as well, please take a minute to think about who you could share this with. And as always, please email us at ara at accordnetwork.org with any recommendations for who you think we should talk with next. So with that, let's jump in. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Lincoln. It's uh, great to have you. Thank you. Hi. Well, it's uh, I'm definitely excited to be picking up on a conversation that we've had with you really over the past several years. And to catch everyone up quickly here, uh, Lincoln serves as the Director of Research at International Care Ministries, which works in the Philippines. And he spoke at our annual Accord Research Alliance intensive in 2017 about a randomized controlled trial or RCT uh, that they were conducting in partnership with uh, Dean Carland and others through the Innovations for Poverty Action. And so after that, I followed up and we did a podcast interview back in November of 2017. And so that is Episode number seven, if you want to go back and listen to that podcast, a lot of great, uh, a lot of great uh, thoughts from Lincoln in that one. Uh, so I definitely encourage that. But I wanted to catch up because since then, um, the results of this RCT were published. And the title of the paper was Randomizing Religion, the Impact of Protestant Evangelism on Economic Outcomes. So obviously this raised some eyebrows and and drew lots of interest, uh, I would say both from from faith-based organizations and also more broadly. And so uh, as an alliance, we really view Lincoln and ICM as pioneers in our space. And uh, so I've really been looking forward to to catch up with you, Lincoln. Thanks, thanks, Nathan. Now it's been been really great to be part of the, the alliance and I feel like we're, there's probably not too many people in the M&E research space in faith-based organizations and Christian organizations. So it's a great community to be a part of. And I think all the interactions that I've had, it's just been encouraging and a blessing. So yeah, really grateful. Awesome. Well, it's been great having you part of it. So well, let's jump in. 
Um, I mean, first, can you just briefly catch us up on what's happened in the past four years at ICM since we last spoke? Sure. So yeah, thanks for bringing, reminding me that in 2017, I had that chance to, uh, to speak to, to the whole group. And I think that back then we were talking, I was sharing a little bit about preliminary results from that study that you just mentioned, uh, randomizing uh, religion. Uh, and I mean, interestingly, looking back at the timeline, we collected the data in 2014. That's when the program happened. Uh, 2017, I was there with all of you talking about preliminary results, saying that the study's coming soon, uh, and then it eventually gets published June 2020. I think it's filed under 2021. So maybe the first thing to say is these studies take a long time. Uh, we were always hoping that it would come out a little bit sooner, but uh, the reality was a 2014 program, we ended up publishing or seeing the publication in 2020, so uh, six years later. Uh, so that's that's probably one of the, the major things that happened with uh, the RCT getting published, uh, finally being in press. Uh, but we, we did get the opportunity to interact with a lot of the results, uh, talk through some of, you know, what does this mean for ICM? And maybe that'll be something that we can talk about today. Uh, questions that arose. Uh, we're definitely thankful for the relationship that we had with the researchers, getting to go in depth, setting up that control style, like setting up the control arm, having the program arm, but it was difficult because maybe the, the size of the study or maybe part of the, the purpose of it, uh, it led to us when we were reviewing the data, we didn't really know how to act on it. We didn't really know how to make strategic decisions based on the findings. We, we had some hints, but we didn't necessarily have clear directions. So. Um, while it was, it's been a great experience, it's been very valuable, but it also left a lot of questions to be answered. And I, I would even say it gave us even more questions that we wanted to answer. And um, we're now looking to see uh, how can we be even more actionable in terms of reflecting on this study. That's great. Um, a lot of things happening, but also some things happening slowly as you're talking about there. So, um, but I, I think, you know, one thing I was curious about, um, and since we last talked in 2017, a lot has happened and just, you know, RCTs have um, definitely been in the news and, and uh, um, you know, it's, so I guess I was just curious to ask you, would you say in any way that your, either your personal view or the organization's view around RCTs has changed at all? Uh, over the past several years? Yeah, yeah, I think broadly speaking, one, maybe one way to summarize what we think about RCTs is that it's a very useful methodology, but it is still one methodology. And there will always be problems and questions where another methodology might be a better fit. Uh, we definitely see the merits uh, for having RCTs. And like you mentioned, it's, it's, maybe a hot topic right now um, with vaccines and um, randomization and placebos and all, all of that as well. It, it seems like it's a really good fit. Maybe that, that is worth mentioning briefly here is it's a great fit if we are very clear about the intervention as a whole package. So we know that this is the intervention and a vaccine probably fits that example quite well. That's the one we want to test. And if it works, we'll use it. If it doesn't, then we throw it away or we try to redevelop it. I think one of the 
the the challenges or one of the issues we came across was the package for us was this whole program that had multiple components and different actors and there's partner pastors involved and our involvement as an organization. So when we run an RCT, that's simply program versus control or program versus nothing. And we find out that some things are good, some things don't work. It still doesn't tell us which component of the package do we tweak, which one should we pull out, which one isn't working. We just know that the package as a whole isn't working. So um, yeah, I, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think we're seeing that the RCT as a design, if we're looking at a complete, completed uh, single intervention, then it might work well. But then as a program for a program as a whole, if you want to know which component to work on, then it's kind of like a different, maybe a different methodology uh, is a better fit. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's a helpful way to, to think about that and understanding, thinking about a program broadly versus maybe one specific aspect or one specific intervention uh, that's part of that. So um, one other thing I kind of wanted to explore following up on what we've talked about uh, before um, is some of your thoughts around epistemology. And so we, 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 we talked about this. This was something you brought up in your, in your presentation back in 2017. And, uh, you know, just as a way of background, you know, from a more academic standpoint, I guess you could say epistemology, you know, it's a branch of philosophy. But in our, in our last podcast, you kind of defined it well, I thought, and simply, which is where you said um, that epistemology is, uh, where would you believe that truth or evidence comes from? I think that's a good way to, to think about it. So I'm curious. Um, so first of all, because we didn't really actually unpack, uh, uh, we didn't really have you answer that question uh, last time as I was listening to it again. I was wondering, um, maybe you could unpack a little bit for us what your own uh, kind of personal view toward that is. Um, and if in any way that's changed for you kind of around your engagement around RCTs or just your work in general um, with ICM. So how would you define what your epistemology is or where do you get confidence uh, in what counts as evidence? Yeah, I think you got me there, Nathan. I, I guess I never, you never asked me that question or I, I chose not to, to answer that directly, but uh, I, I do think it, it might have changed a little bit here and there. Uh, definitely, uh, I probably started a lot more quantitative. So coming from that positivist, post-positivist type of idea that we can, uh, we can reduce phenomena into a equation or a statistic and then understand it. Uh, but probably more and more, um, and I, I know I'm seeing this, these trends in a lot of research in development and global health and some of these fields as well as this whole idea of mixed methods. And when you're asking me about epistemology, I think of uh, Cresswell, who has a great textbook on methods. And uh, he talks about mixed methods being, if there was an epistemology, it'd be pragmatism. And that maybe it's okay to be qualitative sometimes, it's okay to be quantitative, quantitative sometimes. The, the goal more than anything else is to um, find programs that work or find interventions that work or be able to show that. Uh, but the other thing that I probably would add quite quickly is uh, I do sense that there's, there is that pressure <clears throat> or maybe because mixed methods is, is very popular right now, uh, I hope that there isn't the temptation to just do part of it not as well. 
So if we're going to do quantitative and qualitative, they both have to be done at the highest quality that we can do it. Um, there's no point mixing a bad methodology into to what we're trying to do. That, that's worse than, than just picking, picking one methodology. Um, and then the, the other thing that maybe I'll just briefly talk about is it feels like um, the other shift is we're thinking a lot more about um, pragmatic trials. So instead of very complicated trials that require a lot of change to our programs, we're trying to do these rapid fire trials that mesh really well with our ongoing programs. Uh, and maybe that's not as much an epistemology, but it seems to be, um, it, it matches what we're thinking in terms of not causing so much chaos to the organization to run some of these studies. Uh, and then the other aspect is also there's been a more, there's been a careful focus on implementation. So there's a, the field of implementation science and implementation research. We're definitely using a lot of those frameworks now when we're designing our studies and thinking about what to, what to collect data on. That's great. And I definitely want to follow up on what you're talking about, some of these rapid fire uh, tests that you're doing. Um, so I think that's really fascinating and a really cool way uh, to be moving. But one more question, just kind of following up on the epistemology question here and, and you know, how, you, how you think about evidence, how you determine what counts as evidence. Uh, how would you say that your personal faith or even the, the Christian values and identity of ICM influences uh, or should influence, I guess, could be another way to think about it, how you think about what counts as evidence? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think when I first, so my background's in epidemiology, infectious diseases. So I was at a, you know, quote unquote, secular university uh, in the medical field. And there was, I guess somewhere in the back of my mind, maybe subconsciously, it felt like research science and faith were separate entities. And it was difficult to merge those two. Uh, recently, it, what's been quite interesting, and maybe I'm just looking through my, my Bible with a different angle. And uh, one thing I've kind of been taking notes on, and maybe I'll have the opportunity to write about it sometime in the future, is it looks like there's research methods that were applied in a lot of the Bible stories that we see. So I think of, I think of Daniel um, and the, the test that he put himself um, through in, in, the, in the eunuch's court. And there, it was, you know, it's, it's like an A-B test. There was a group that received intervention and a group that didn't. And the results of it led to policy change in a foreign country. Actually, it's an amazing story uh, of research and evidence and uh, practice. And, you know, I, I was talking to, to some students as well uh, that are Christian, and there's, there's a whole book of numbers in the Bible, right? So um, more and more, I, I think, I'm not seeing research methods as something new that we came up with in the last century or two centuries. Instead, I'm, I'm seeing some of these, this, this perspective of inquiry and doing it carefully. It's, it's something that I see in scripture. And so I don't see it as separate from my faith. And instead I, I kind of see it uh, within, the, within the scriptures and that's been really refreshing. And um, yeah, I'll definitely think about it more and, and would be interested too to hear what others think. That's awesome. No, I love that. I haven't ever thought of uh, that story in that way. So now I'm going to <laughs> want to go back and reread that because that's uh, that's awesome. Um, that's a really cool way to think about that. And uh, you, you mentioned students in there. And so I know you've been doing some teaching recently um, at Wheaton around m and &E, um, to some grad students there. So I'm, I'm curious if you wanted to reflect here just 
you know, maybe on some of your overall thoughts on, on monitoring, evaluation, and research. Um, I guess a question would be, where do you see RCTs going overall, kind of more broadly? And what role do you see them playing at faith-based organizations like those in the Accord Network? Sure. Yeah, it, it's been fascinating. It was, it was such a privilege to, to get to work with grad students that are passionate in the humanitarian field and looking for careers in this space, uh, but also Christian students who are thinking about um, this. Uh, one of the first things I, I guess that's worth pointing out is I recently received the student evaluations and I was skimming through some of the notes and it, it caught my attention that um, it's great that these students were honest and saying that, you know, this was not the top class that they're excited about because it sounds like it's numbers and spreadsheets and statistics. Uh, that's probably not the first thing that drew them into the humanitarian field. Uh, but interestingly, and, and I think very thankfully, it, it seemed like some of the materials that we were able to go over uh, was able to convince some of these students that and lead them to appreciate that there is a role for M&E. And the role of it really is about accountability. So that, you know, whatever programs that we're running, whatever resources we're pouring into these activities that we're doing and the, all the inputs, that there is that connection to results. And that that's not a bad thing. Uh, and so the numbers are not just this cold, um, cold data living on a spreadsheet, but they are representations of human beings and rep representations of change uh, in people. So where RCTs fit in, and I, I'm, I think more important than saying that this is the best methodology for, for everything is, I think it, it should be part of the toolkit that we can choose from. And more than anything, I think we are in the best possible place if more and more people in this field have that very broad toolkit that we can choose from and we pick the best possible method to increase the accountability that we have in our programs. And by that way, I think we become the best stewards and we maximize our resources and um, we can be as effective as possible. So uh, I think that's part of what I would feel really encouraged and really excited about is seeing creativity and the way we apply methodology and seeing it applied in all these correct um, and new ways to give us rigorous data and rigorous evidence. Um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be a really great. Awesome. Well, let's, let's uh, dig into that a little bit more, this specific tool that could be part of our, our toolkit. Um, and I want to get a little bit more, more tangible here and we can get into some specific uh, methodology around these uh, rapid fire tests or these, these kind of new RCTs that you're running at ICM. So can you just first tell us briefly, you know, what these RCTs are uh, that you're running and then uh, dive into the methodology a little bit, you know, what, how are you setting these up and, you know, do these differ in any way from the previous RCT you did? Yeah. So we, we were very, we're very blessed to, to receive a grant from the Global Innovation Fund recently. And uh, this is quite a sizable grant that we, we won. And the purpose of this was to, um, and it's in partnership with, with IPA, so Innovations for Poverty Action. And the purpose was to provide us with the resources to test a whole series of different pieces or components of our interventions 
and see whether or not it adds value. The, the goal being maybe in three to five years, we will know which components work best and then maybe we can assemble it together and have a brand new program uh, as a whole. So just to give you a few examples, uh, there's multiple tracks in this study, but one that might be interesting to, to discuss quickly is uh, around grants. So being a poverty alleviation program, we, before this year, I think our theory was to give very, very small sized grants. We were giving grants that were between 50 cents to $2 US per family. It's just to experience business. And the idea or the theory that we had was the experience would be valuable as a lesson. And then we hope then further on, they can carry those business lessons with them. Uh, the difference now is we were looking at different models around the world and we see that it does look like the evidence says that sizable grants are also important to kickstart businesses. So one of the tracks, the randomization that we're doing is we are trying different sized grants. So there is this kind of gold standard size grant, which is quite large at around 200 US dollars per family. And so we'll, we're gonna try the 200, maybe we'll try a $100 and a $50 one uh, for individuals. And then on top of that, we also thought, why don't we try individuals versus groups? Maybe there's something about a group dynamic, holding each other accountable, encouraging one another, that will make it more useful. So the randomization for this track is, um, randomizing the size, the quantity of the, the money, and randomizing whether it's for individuals or whether it's for groups. And I hope that you can see how setting up a study like this means that the one that comes, up, comes out ahead, it gives us confidence that that's the one we can immediately put into the program. And that could be our strategy going forward. That's really cool. So, I mean, how long will that RCT take around grant size? So it's, it's fairly quick. The, the program is four months of teaching, and then we coach and walk alongside these families as we disperse the grants. So the, the program from start to finish, we're estimating about 11 to 12 months, and then we're doing data collection before and then data collection in the middle and at the end. So we'll get a sense of which businesses uh, uh, produce the most profit, which businesses uh, had the largest uptake, and which businesses negatively would have the most dropouts and um, there's different outcome measures that we're looking at. Okay. And as far as data collection goes, is it, is this data that you've normally been collecting and your staff is just continuing to collect or is this something where, you know, kind of the partnership um, with IPA is coming in as far as collecting new data or, or having different enumerators? What does the actual data collection process look like? Sure. So the, the core indicators of success that we've established for our program, we are not really changing those. Uh, we're keeping those stable so that we can benchmark with the past and we can benchmark with the future. Uh, so I think the, the core measures of whether or not this will be successful or not, they are ones that we've been collecting for a long time. But because it's a new study, because there's new components, of course, there's added uh, there's added data collection and there's different indicators that we're gonna be looking at. But I think the core of it is the same. And that's also another reason why we can do this so quickly. That makes a lot of sense. So another question I had is just, you know, you're talking about an aspect of the program you were curious about was, you know, the size of the grant. Um, so there's a lot of questions coming out of program design. And I'm sure these are questions, maybe different people in the organization have had at different times, or maybe these are 
I don't know if these are ideas, you know, kind of being brought in from, from your academic partners. Uh, can you walk us through, like, what is the, what does the process look like internally inside ICM around coming up with these ideas and I guess deciding these research questions or the specific um, intervention that you would want to test? Yeah, this is a, I think this question of who chooses what goes into an RCT is one that we've wrestled with quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I think, <clears throat> so this is something I would still love for us to work on and, and develop more, but by and large, most of the ideas do come from literature searches or it comes from something that we see that other organizations are trying and that have been successful. I think there's arguments, there's an argument to be made that that's a great place to glean new ideas from, especially if someone else comes up with something great in another context and it seems like it'll work in our context, let's bring it over and try it. Uh, But one RCT that uh, I thought maybe I'd quickly mention that we did about two years ago uh, was on tuberculosis. So uh, one, the problem that we were facing was that we would find a lot of people that had the symptoms for tuberculosis which means they should be uh, they should be referred and they should go to a, a health center to get tested. That's kind of the, the simple flow of the program. The problem was lots of symptomatic people did not want to get tested. This was because of maybe stigma or distance or cost. We, had, we didn't know why. So we were looking at a 20% success rate at getting people to go to the center to get tested. So the first RCT that we did was pretty simple. We randomize the groups into group A getting money, group B getting some food if they go get tested, and then group C not getting anything. And it was great. We saw an effect for group A, for group B. The rates actually went up um, substantially to 60 70%. But when we finished that, I remember discussing with my team, what should we do next? Uh, is there a way to increase this even further? And I, I think the idea that we came up with was, let's stop asking ourselves, why don't we ask our frontline staff? So we put together a a contest of sorts and we had ideas coming up from the field. And we ended up taking the the ideas that made the most sense into the next round of the RCT, which is a a really fantastic process, I think, because instead of all the ideas coming from quote unquote top down or from the global North and from universities, uh, this was just a great method to take what the frontline staff are seeing. This is, this is what they think is a better idea. And we put it into the RCT and their idea was really, one of them was really out of the box. It was uh, to sponsor somebody to walk alongside the patient. So uh, the wait times are, are awkward, traveling alone is not comfortable. Uh, so if we sponsored a person to sit with that sick individual and guide them through the whole process, then maybe we'd see higher numbers. And we did see um, higher numbers for that group. So yeah, I thought that's a great story of getting ideas from the field. Yeah. I love that. Love that. So as I, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm kind of sitting here thinking about maybe, um, uh, two different types of people that might be listening, uh, today. So one, one group might be, you know, working either they're, um, you know, at a university, uh, they're in academia, or maybe they're part of an organization that has a pretty well-established, you know, m system and is doing research and has partnered with academics before or, you know, is considering it. And so they might be really interested in kind of your um, perspective around what it's like to work with uh, an academic partner, uh, like the ones you've been working with. There might be another camp that's just 
you know, at organizations and they're maybe starting out with kind of setting up their ME systems and they're just trying to get their monitoring data in order and thinking, you know, there could be, you know, there's no way we could do an RCT. That seems so far beyond us um, currently. So I kind of want to get your thoughts and advice uh, to, to perhaps both of these groups. And so starting with uh, the first one, you know, thinking about those at a more established, uh, an organization with more established ME work, um, what, uh, what advice would you give based on your experience now over several years of, of working with um, Dean Carlin and others um, at IPA? Um, what thoughts would you give or advice would you give around what makes a successful partnership? So just to start off, I, I think it is important to just say right off the bat, there is tension and I, there is going to always be tension between the needs of a nonprofit and the needs of an academic. And that's just because they are different jobs with different deliverables and, and different pressures. And so maybe when I think about choosing partners, I'm very mindful of choosing partners that are willing to step at least a little bit into the middle, into that median. Uh, there are, There is going to be work that an NGO will ask of an academic for it to be a successful partnership for that you know, doesn't contribute to tenure, that doesn't contribute to publications, or doesn't contribute to that whole academic survival um, package. And I think the same, but the same goes for an NGO. And I think this is probably what's going to be necessary. And what we've found to be helpful is the NGO should also take a step towards academia as well. And recognizing that, sure, not all the questions they ask are going to maybe be relevant to what we're doing. Uh, not all the questions they ask are uh, maybe directly aligned to the program that we want to do, but um, we are going to explore that whole realm as well. So uh, yeah, but I, I would be amiss not to mention that we, we do feel that tension because um, it's not always about publishing, uh, especially from the, the nonprofit side. Uh, the really, the, the, the partnerships that seem to flow really well uh, and, and definitely IPA is one of the, the biggest partners that we have, and we've worked so long with them, is uh, they, they have a really strong understanding of the field. Uh, they have field offices all around the world. And so it's been, it's a lot smoother and it's a lot easier to work with uh, researchers and project managers and data collectors that know what it's like to, to be in country and deal with those challenges. Uh, and then there's other academics that we're working with right now. And similar, it seems like that's a similar profile. There's, there's an understanding of what it's like to, to work in these more challenging contexts. And they also have that desire to extend a little bit. Um, so just as an example, uh, there's another partner that we have at the University of Waterloo. Um, and this professor has um, taken a lot of his research funding to help us out with administrative costs. And he's... He recognizes that as part of the cost for him to do research. So every time he sends a grad student, he covers costs on our side to host them and to, to work with them. And I think that understanding um, is important. So the, the advice I'd probably give is it's, I think there's, there's a lot of fruitfulness that can be derived from working with universities and NGOs. There is tension there because of that difference. But if we find the right partners, that are both willing to, to see the needs of the other side, then I, I think it can be very successful. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. 
Um, so on the other side, let's go to the other side here. And, you know, for those who might again, be listening and thinking, yeah, RCT should be a tool, uh, in the toolbox, but, you know, we're still focusing on, on the, getting the core tools in there, uh, currently and, and not sure that we could move to, to an RCT or a rapid fire test even, um, I guess, what advice would you give to, to an organization like that and how to be thinking about, um, uh, moving toward RCTs or moving toward this type of, of evidence gathering? Yeah, one, one thought that, that I'm mulling over uh, is that there, it does appear that there's a high bar to successfully get an RCT off. And I think if you want to publish it and we want it in, in a, a high impact academic journal, then it is very, very difficult and very expensive. But I think what, what I'm, yeah, what, what I'm considering and, and some of the other NGOs that I've been able to talk with is, I do still, I wonder if there's more ways we can be creative to at least apply some of the principles. Uh, so one topic that, you know, we haven't had the chance to talk about too much is we're also doing a lot more qualitative work right now at ICM. Uh, so a lot of our RCTs has a qualitative component, uh, whether we write about it or not, it's been very, very important to, to um, add that to the toolkit that we have and, and the methods that we choose from. But when I think about the qualitative work we do as well, it's actually, it can be very, very expensive. And there's also a very high bar to do it really well. Again, if you want to publish this and, and all of that, then it goes even higher, the, the, the burden of, of the, the work. Uh, so, and so I guess what I'm trying to say here is uh, I think regardless whether it's a, a burgeoning m and &E department that's just starting to collect statistics, um, it might be worth taking a step back, just thinking creatively or, or just maybe thinking outside of the box. Is there a way to create a counterfactual that doesn't cost the organization anything? Is there a way to maybe stagger the rollout? So we have periods where there is pre-program the program isn't happening in a location and we can use that as a comparison group. I mean, if there is, it's not maybe that, you know, academic RCT, but at least the principles are there. We maybe can randomize a little bit. Maybe we can have that AB test kind of configuration. We have a counterfactual to compare with. And even if we're just looking at monitoring statistics. So um, another study we're currently doing right now is on attendance and we're giving out different prizes uh, different types of prizes to see which one affects attendance the most. And for that one, I think there's no surveys required. Uh, we're not sending out interviewers. We're not using anything fancy. We're just looking at the attendance records and seeing whether or not different prizes affect attendance. So um, yeah, I, I really think that it's that applying, maybe there's possibilities to apply some of those principles. And then for this, and the same thing goes with qualitative. Uh, I think we can go and collect some feedback stories or we can do it in a very, very rigorous way. And um, also in the same vein, I think that should be done. It can be done creatively. It can be done at a high level and it can be done in a way that mixes together really well. I really like that. And that, yeah, that's really helpful. I think in, in hopefully encouraging um, to many out there to think about how this can be applied in, in creative ways um, that might not seem so daunting. Um, as a full-fledged RCT that you're trying to get in a, in a top-tier journal like you're talking about. So last question here for you um, is just, I'd love to know what's something you've read 
recently that has challenged your thinking that you would also recommend to others? Sure. So maybe a book. It's not, I didn't read it as recently, but it, I think it connects well with our conversation is um, I was reading Emperor of All Maladies, uh, but I think it's by Mukherjee and he calls it a, a biography of cancer. And I, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the, the book, but it's a fascinating uh, chronicle of the researchers that work with cancer from when we had no idea what it was then to different treatments and then to, um, yeah, <clears throat> kind of understanding how the disease propagates and so on and so forth. But what really struck me when I read this, and I think it connects well with some of the things we've discussed so far, is a lot of times when the researchers came up against cancer, they actually invented the methodology. So <clears throat> randomized controlled trials, that was with um, not exactly cancer, but um, Mukherjee talks about it in his book. And he talks about the birth of randomization, of randomized controlled trials. He talks about the researchers then that were working to prove the link between tobacco and lung cancer. And then they came up with new methodologies because um, at that time, the tobacco companies were fighting the researchers to say that you can't run an RCT, you can't prove causality. And so they used these cohort studies <clears throat> to establish that causal link. And it fascinates me because these were researchers working on something that is just such a terrible malady. Uh, but when they're faced with this problem, they invented a new methodology. And part of me wonders if, you know, those of us working in this, uh, in the development field and in the aid and the humanitarian field, there might be times where we also need to invent new methodologies. So yeah, that's, that was just one thing that I, I picked up and I thought it was quite interesting. Thanks, Lincoln. That's a great parting thought there. And I would actually second uh, that recommending that book. I read it a few years back and uh, found it fascinating as well. So um, I appreciate you taking time. It's always great to catch up with you, uh, to hear your thoughts. Um, I know they're encouraging and, and challenging and inspiring all at the same time. And so I just really appreciate you taking time uh, out of your busy day and what's now your nighttime there, I know, uh, to, uh, to talk with us. That's a, a real pleasure. Thanks, Nathan. All right, thanks.